morning, Glory. America, bonjour. Hi, candidates. Hugh Hewitt. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue, hour number three of our special Victory in Europe uh, special. But I do want to mention, not only did Neiman Marcus go bankrupt yesterday, the Supreme Court threw out the Bridgegate convictions and General Flynn have the prosecution dropped. By Monday morning, I will have read through all the documents that Adam Schiff has released under pressure from Rick Grinnell. And I'll be able to tell you, all weekend long, people like me are going to be pouring over these documents so that on Monday we're able to tell you just how badly collapsed is the attempted Russian hoax and the attempted coup against the president. It's all in a smoldering heap. It'll take a while to comb through the ruins, sort of like the ruins of Berlin after we beat Hitler 75 years ago today. But for looking back first, we turn to Dr. Larry Arndt, president of Hillsdale College, on this, the 75th anniversary of what some people call the highest point of moral Western civilization of the last 150 years, Victory in Europe Day, 75 years later. Now, I didn't, I didn't prepare you for this, and it's nosy of me, but I would like to know about your father-in-law and when he was liberated from the prisoner of war camp in which he was interned by the Japanese or captured and held hostage, and how he got back to the United... I mean, what happened to him? Because in one story, there are thousands, right? Yeah. Well, his... You know, my, my father-in-law was... Both my grandfather, my wife's grandfather and father, were lieutenant colonels of the Royal Lancashire Gunners. Uh, they were artillery regiments. And they were attached in both wars to the Coldstream Guards, which is one of the elite regiments. Oh, yes. And that meant that they had very hard wars. Uh, my wife's grandfather was in all three battles of Ypres in the Somme, right? <laughs> and he, by all accounts, was a shattered man after that. My wife's father, was, they're lawyers, and uh, my wife's father was high sheriff of Lancashire. He was a tinkerer. He fixed... Uh, grandfather clocks, he carved things in ivory, shameful now, I know today, but we have a bunch of them, and they're beautiful. And, and uh, he was a lawyer. He was a man, a serious leader in his county in northwest of England, northwest of England, yeah. And, and so he's the head of this artillery regiment, and they get sent over there, and they get set up in France, and then they begin the retreat, and because they were with the Coldstream Guards, they left Dunkirk Beach the last day anybody did. And he has great memories of that. The reason I don't like that Dunkirk movie is that, uh, first of all, the beaches were very crowded, right? There were several hundred thousand people on them. And you can't make a movie with that many people unless you do it artificially. No. And they no. didn't. But second, he records how the uh, Coldstream Guards would get up and drill every morning, just like if they were in an encampment. And, uh, and, you know, bombs coming, and uh, they wouldn't duck. Uh, my, my father-in-law and, his, and uh, my uncle-in-law served together, captured together in Singapore. Um, they, they record once being in a, in a barn and hearing a shell coming. And they were gunners. They knew it was going to hit in the barn. And they started wincing and, you know, getting down under the table. And they had maps on the table. And the bomb hit and did come into the barn, blew up one end of it. But when they got back up, the guys from the Coast Street guys were still looking at the map. <laughs> so, so he loved things like that. And then, you know, he practiced rolling barrels of gasoline down the, down the, down the beach 
toward the sea to try to time when they would explode and kill some Germans. That's what the British were reduced to. And then he was sent to Singapore, and, you know, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in December 1941, and, you know, the rest of Southeast Asia almost simultaneously. And he got there uh, on the Malay Peninsula, which is long, skinny thing, jungles, and uh, he got there just in time to join the retreat, and they retreated down the peninsula, and they ended up in Singapore, heavily defended for attack from the sea, not from the land. Nobody thought the Japanese could do that, and they did do it. Amphibious, repeated amphibious maneuvers. And so he got captured, and and, uh, for a while he was the second in command of the camp, and then he was commander. And uh, he has a lot of stories about that, and the way he tells them, they're funny. Uh, He was a tinkerer, and so he got up in a beam across the top of the uh, across the top of the ceiling of the of the can- of their of their cabin and he uh he carved out a place and and built a uh a uh, lid for it that was you couldn't see it you know he was he could do fine carpentry and he stuck a radio they had a radio and it was a desk to have a radio and he stuck a radio down in it and uh, and he could climb up to the top and take the lid off and turn it on and put the lid back and they would listen to the radio with a stethoscope <laughs> and uh, wow and then the the time came when uh, word came that the the Japanese were looking for a radio and the rule was in the camp that if you had contraband you'd be shot and if you couldn't be found then the uh, camp commander would be sh- shot. And then as my father-in-law went and said to the camp commander, well, they're looking for my radio. <laughs> One of us is going to get shot. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so they decided to hide it. So they took it out of the camp, and there had been some trucks parked uh, right up against the fence of the camp. And he stuck it between two wheels of a you know double-wheeled tow tr- uh, heavy goods truck. And... It had been there for weeks, these trucks. And he got up the next morning, and the parking lot was empty. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and he said, oh, my God, they found the radio. And so he spent a couple of days waiting for them to come, and they never did. And so his theory is that the truck driver stole the radio. Oh, oh, stole it. So, so this is interesting. In a time when a lot of Americans feel like they're being held prisoner, mm-hmm. your father-in-law really was a prisoner. Yeah. Did he always think about what would life be like after he got out? Was he always looking forward to what came next? So that leads us in the next segment, in the next three segments, to what Churchill was doing during the crisis about planning for it on an individual basis with your father-in-law always looking forward. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, he was, uh, he, you know, he, he went back to his normal life. And he treasured that, right? He, he didn't want to be anything except what he was, which was an upstanding, fine citizen, a leader in the church. A, a law, you know, the law firm was founded in 1776, and the three families who ran it had lawyers in it through the end of my father. That was not an auspicious year for the British Empire. No, no. Well, you know, there was disaster at the beginning and the end, I guess. But uh, they, you know, and he he... 
And the war, he, like, you know, I was warned a hundred times by my wife before I met the man, Daddy doesn't like to talk about the war. And I say, okay, I know you, you know, he doesn't like to talk about the war. And uh, the first time I met him, we got there about 8.30 at night, and he said, uh, would you like a drink, young man? And I said, thank you. And he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I work for Martin Gilbert. And he said, well, what do you do for him? And I said, well, I do research. And he said, research what? And I said, well, Churchill. And he said, well, Churchill, of course, but what part? And I said, well, right now we're working on the Second World War. <laughs> and he said, uh, oh, what part? And I said, this week, I said, Dunkirk Beach. He said, I was there. Uh -huh. <laughs> we talked about the war. For the first two hours, I knew the man. And uh, the, the truth that emerged from that was he didn't like to talk about himself. He likes to talk about the war. Ah. And, uh, ah. and, you know, with somebody who'd be interested. And, you know, the British people have manners, which is their weapon. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that meant that, you know, he was doing the right thing, talking about something I was interested in, but also probing me. And uh, uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, he was, but, you know, of his age, um, see, my wife was born after the war. And I always remember this story. It's my favorite story about that. There's a man named Claude Nicholson, who was the commander at Calais, where the casualties were almost 100%. And they were holding up the Germans to get, let the people get off Dunkirk Beach. And Nicholson was wounded and, and uh, then captured and died six months later in a German prisoner war camp. And almost all of them were killed, or almost, you know, because Churchill told them, you can't be relieved, you have to hold on. And uh, he was a very brave man, right? And he never saw his family again. Well, my wife was born after that. Right? That means that he helped save my wife's father's life. Yeah. And that means uh, he helped, helped save my children. That is what we're thinking about on this, the 75th anniversary of people who made sacrifices. Even as we go through our crisis, when we come back on the Hillsdale Dialogue, we'll talk about how you plan for after the crisis, what Churchill did. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the last radio hour of the week. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Salem Radio Network returns for break in four minutes and 15 seconds. Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in three minutes and 45 seconds.
The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in three minutes and 15 seconds. Salem Radio Network returns for break in two minutes and 45 seconds. The Salem Radio Network returns for break in two minutes and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns for break in one minute and 45 seconds. Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in one minute and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 45 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show returns from break in five seconds. America. It's the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College, official biographer, part of the team on Winston Churchill, knows more about Churchill than anyone else on the planet, I think, because Sir Martin Gilbert has gone to his reward. His book, Churchill's Trial, is wonderful. 
Today we're going to talk, though, we're in the middle of a crisis that we haven't seen in 100 years since the last uh, great influenza, the last great illness. And Dr. Arndt, when did Churchill begin planning for after the war in the course of fighting it? Because that's something that the president and his team have got to start thinking about. Well, uh, first of all, he was very reluctant for a long time to have any talk of that because he thought, take our eye off the ball here and we'll get killed. Uh, but then in 1944, especially, late 43, there was a commission to make some plans. Uh, there were two, actually, one sort of general plans. One, the Beveridge Commission. Uh, Beveridge, William Beveridge, was a, uh, a social science expert that Churchill himself brought into public life, designing the labor exchanges and unemployment relief that Churchill helped to implement in, before 1910. Uh, so Beveridge, you know, he did a big, and Churchill didn't like the Beveridge report because it basically called for socialized medicine. But uh, he thought that a national health service that uh, relied a lot on private insurance and options would be the thing. But anyway, he resisted that. But uh, he thought, you know, uh, first of all, there's some things very specific to the war, as there will be about this virus we're suffering. Uh, people lost their houses. You know, there was a system oh, yeah. for giving them money to insurance for that. And soldiers coming home. That was a very big deal. And then converting industry back to private uses. All of those things, right? And, and uh, so they began to make plans. And, of course, the plans very soon diverged because the coalition, which had, you know, the conservatives had a big majority in the House of Commons, but the... The uh, Labor Party had you know, roughly equal place in the cabinet. And, of course, their idea was to keep marshalling everything and run a socialist economy. And Churchill didn't want that. And he was forbidden, or he was stopped, you might say, from his situation in coalition with these guys. And he liked these guys, too, by the way, and they were loyal, and they liked him, loved him. Um, uh, he, he couldn't really hammer their plans. And uh, nobody knew how the people were going to vote after the war. The betting was that Churchill was going to win. But Churchill has, it records he had a stab of fear uh, uh, the night of the election. And, you know, then it took three weeks to count the votes, and, and uh, the labor won in a landslide. But... He was really liberated to talk about after the war when the election was called. And that means in uh, May and June, he made speeches about the choice in front of the British people. And one of the most dramatic uh, is uh, he, 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 he talks about what he's going to do. And what he's going to do is social insurance. Churchill was a big believer in that. And, and thought that they had implemented it in 1908 to 1910 and that it had worked right through the 1930s, that people felt secure. Uh, Working-class people and middle-class people voted Tory, which he wanted, because that meant they believed in limited government and civil liberties. Uh, and so he talked about that, and then he denounced socialism. And, uh, you know, it's a strong partisan thing, he said, uh, uh, a socialist government in Britain, never intending it, could not achieve its ultimate aims without the use of a secret police 
a Gestapo. And uh, that was uh, understood, thought that it's still written a lot, that that was the crazy speech, because then he got beat really bad. And uh, there are two mitigations of that. Uh, one is Clement Attlee had called him a Nazi a week before that. But uh, uh, second, he'd been saying things like that for 40 years. 40 years. years. When we come back, um, are we going to say uh, a replay of exactly that um, victory over the virus followed by political catastrophe? We'll talk with Dr. Arn about that and what President Trump might do to avoid that because it would be a catastrophe. Uh, when we return, don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in five minutes and 15 seconds. Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in four minutes and 45 seconds. Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns for break in four minutes and 15 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in three minutes and 45 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in three minutes and 15 seconds.
Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns for break in two minutes and 45 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns for break in two minutes and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network. Returns from break in one minute and 45 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network. Returns from break in one minute and 15 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 45 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show returns from break in five seconds. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last hour of the week. This has been a special day. I've played three Hillsdale Dialogues in a row the previous two weeks in a brand new one now with Dr. Larry Arn because it's VE Day, the 75th anniversary of victory in Europe, uh, the war in which my father fought and maybe your grandfather fought if you're younger and maybe your great-grandfather fought if you're really young and you're listening. Uh, Dr. Arn is a Churchill expert. His book, Churchill's Trial, I recommend to all of you. And we've been talking about it for, for two hours. And, and now we're coming up to the present day, though, because we're in a battle of our own. It's a different kind of battle, although it was launched by just as evil an enemy. The Communist Chinese Party just unleashed this on the world, and it's, it's savaged the whole globe. And now President Trump is leading the response, and he's being savaged, and he's being praised, and he's being savaged. And one would think that the Republican Party wasn't behind him, but 95% of it is, but they give a lot of attention to the 5% that isn't. And I think it's because it would be catastrophic for the country in November 
to turn to Vice President Biden because of the nature, uh, both as to the limits of his energy, but also the nature of the party that he now leads, which is as thoroughly socialist, I think, Dr. Arn, as uh, the party that replaced Churchill in power. Clement Attlee, am I right? Well, uh, well, yes and no. Parts of it are, uh, and very explicitly, but, uh, you know, the comprehensive regulatory state has been favored by the American left since the beginning of the uh, progressive era, and that was sort of an alternative to socialism, and they thought that it could be more comprehensive, you know, and, and there were lots of socialists, there have been lots of socialists on the American left, and in respectable places, the vice president under Franklin Roosevelt, Henry Wallace, but, uh, but uh, they've, they, they also have a kind of different think, thinking about it, and that is that we can regulate society comprehensively, and we can steer it comprehensively. And I think that's where the, where the meat of it is. And I also myself worry a lot because uh, uh, there's lots of proposals to change the electoral system, get rid of the Senate, national popular vote, lots of things like that, which are an impatience with the checks and balances and dispersions of power, including electoral power, that's set up in the Constitution. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, they might make it illegal for somebody but them to win an election effectively. So I, you know, this is a, this is a, it, it is an amazing time, isn't it? That uh, we've got this political dispute and it's very fundamental and it's gone on for a long time. Its intensity has increased very greatly with Trump for the simple reason that it's resisted uh, fiercely and obviously, even contemptuously from Trump. And then on the other hand, now we have this virus, right? And, and, uh, the, the left will read this as this central planning of the society is what's necessary, the only way to protect ourselves and you know, this I, I modern world. And we, we can't draw that conclusion. I want to be very careful to say I admire and esteem scientists and science, and I admire and esteem the CDC and the FDA, but they caused the error at the beginning. They, that, that elite group of scientists botched the test. President Trump didn't botch the test. He is no more capable of making a test than I am or you are. That's what the elite was supposed to do. And they couldn't do it. And it cost us a month. And and so to centralize all authority is to centralize error as well as progress. I, I don't know why we have to learn this again and again and again. It's a disaster. So I owe it to Eric Larson that I know this quote I'm going to read you, which is one of the best from Churchill. There are many like this, and I've quoted all of them except never this one. This is the best. He's explaining why we can't be governed by experts, and he's writing to H.G. Wells, you know, the futurist author, who he liked a lot, although Wells was a socialist. He says, I can't go along in your latest book with this uh, idea that experts will govern everything. Now, the quote, expert knowledge is limited knowledge. Do you see, by the way, where that's logically necessary? If you yep. devote yourself for decades in epidemiology, those are decades you haven't spent on something else. Correct. The unlimited ignorance of the plain man who knows only what hurts is a safer guide than any vigorous direction of a specialized character. Why would you assume that all except doctors, engineers, etc., are drones or worse? So, first of all... As regards our own lives, it's actually true that we know best. 
right? You know, I have a kind of specialized knowledge. I know something about how to run a college. And I know what it takes, and I know, by the way, who it takes, and it surely ain't just me, right? But that doesn't tell me everything else in the world. And the fact that I've gotten pretty good at that means I haven't gotten pretty good at other things, right? Then he says what statesmen actually do. And it's, this is beautiful. He says, to manage men, to explain difficult things to simple people. That's about his rhetoric. See, that's what he thinks he's doing. He's explaining to them, right? To reconcile interest, to weigh the evidence of disputing experts, to deal with the clamorous emergency of the hour. Are not these things in themselves worth the consideration and labor of a lifetime? So what he's calling for in this is that citizens should rule and they need statesmen to help empower them to rule. And that's why the attitude about this virus is offensive to me, even if I can't prove it hasn't been necessary for at least part of the time. And the reason it's offensive is, uh, you know, Fauci, he starts out by saying this virus is not anything for the American people to worry about. It's something for us experts to worry about. And, you know, uh, Brian Westbury predicts that there are going to be at least three million people who lose their businesses from this. Now, you know what I think has happened? I have been watching Drs. Fauci and Burks, and I think almost on a daily basis, and I haven't watched the last two weeks, we're pre-taping this, they have been walking back the draconian suggestions that they made because they have become aware of the carnage that has happened. And they are now aware of what the president is always worried about, which is death from depression and alcoholism and despair and loss of business and shattered dreams. And they were not expert in that. As you just pointed out, as Churchill pointed out to Wells, they had not trained in that. Yeah. Uh, and so they were they were blind to it, right? They were worried about a disease, as they should be, but that had to be moderated. And now we're having 50 different states operate 50 different responses. And I think that's just grand. Yeah. Well, Brian Westbury made a clever point in our symposium about the coronavirus. He said uh, one of the blessings of the of the decentralized approach to this, uh, and, you know, that's very unusual, by the way. Trump has used his emergency powers chiefly to deregulate things. And in the details yes. of administration, he's deferred to the states. And that means there'll be good examples and bad examples of one kind or another. On the other hand, <laughs> he said, you know, our Michigan governor just extended the lockdown till the end of the end of May. And that's, you know, that's incredible, right? And, uh, but Ohio is easing off, and Michigan businesses compete with Ohio businesses. Are, are you suggesting that Ohio is, in fact, better governed than Michigan? Uh, yes, right now. <laughs> Just I wanted that for posterity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but I, I, I note that but, but federalism will work this way. We will celebrate the successes at the end of this, and we will account for people at the ballot box, right, who have mismanaged their authority. Oh, not so. not in irregular ways, but in regular ways, by voting. That's right. Yeah, this is, you know, if we succumb to all of this, you know, if our, if our constitutional system becomes ossified in the regulatory state, if that happens, that, in my opinion, will not be good for us, right? It will not, and, and you know, like the loss of these businesses, right? I, I love Hillsdale College for so many reasons, right? I love what it stands for, stood for it a long time before I came here, but... Friends of mine and I have been building it, you know, with the help of millions of people. The loss of that would be graver than any loss of income. And, and you know, we get to do that. 
And who the hell are we, right? I was born in Pocahontas, Arkansas. It, uh, you know, and we get to do important things, right? Because we are Americans. And so the loss of that, the reduction of the society to everything is done by permission. That, that is, that's, and, and see, Churchill's point about the Gestapo and the Socialist Party, his point is that people won't like that kind of rule. And so they'll have to be forced. And uh, that's, you know. Yeah, we will be. My father-in-law, since we talked about him, he was an extremely civic-minded man. Yeah. Right? And on the other hand, he loved his own children more than other children, and he took care of them. And and that force, right, that energy, and then the honorable things he did, which were very many, those were also conditioned by the fact that he could do them and had the volition to do them. And therefore, they could be honorable to him, although... It would be 500 miles for him to ever claim any honor. When we come back, we're going to talk about worst-case scenario, because even as victory in Europe is celebrated, they still had to worry about the Japanese and what it would mean to invade the home islands. They had to plan for just horrific things, and Truman had to take tough decisions. We come back, we'll talk about what is the end game as we go into the winter and the fall if the virus returns. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show on VE Day, 70 years, 75 years after the date on the Hillsdale Dialogue. I'll be back with the final segment with Dr. Larry Arn on this VE Day celebration on May 8th, 2020. 75 years ago, Hitler was defeated. Though I want to tell you, they never ever did find the big mine shafts full of gold. They found a lot of art, but they never found the, uh, the legendary gold mine shafts that Hitler set up. They found a lot of art. You can find what you need when it comes to gold from Birch Gold. And you do need some. You need to diversify your IRA, your 401k. And you can do that today by texting my name, Hugh, H-U-G-H, to 474747. That's Hugh to 474747. Spend your weekend doing a little financial planning. Birch Gold will send you a very free, absolutely no obligation required set of information on how to diversify your portfolio, especially your retirement by moving some of it into physically backed gold and silver reserves. They actually store it, and Birch Gold's got all the great ratings, all the five-star ratings, all the Better Business Bureau ratings. You can trust them. I buy my gold from them. You can also buy gold from Birch Gold by going to hughgold.com. But the best thing is to text my name, H-U-G-H, to 474747. They'll be back at you with all the information you need to diversify. Also want to remind you about Angel Tree. We are in that season. Please, today or tomorrow, sometime this weekend, think of the kids whose mom or dad or both parents are in jail. They're in prison for a very long time. Their summers are long. They're hot, especially in the age of this virus. We're celebrating today, but they are not celebrating because their lives are upside down and made worse by isolation, by social distancing. We're going to be able to get a few of them to a few camps, but mostly we're going to send boxes of blessing. $150 worth of coupons for great food, sports equipment, hoop, you know, soccer ball, tire pump, all the kind of stuff you need for a summertime in the city. And a little note from mom or dad saying this comes from me to you. Make their day very, very bright indeed. Let me close as well by reminding you for the last time this week, relieffactor.com. There's the bag, relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. They didn't have this in Europe. They probably would have eaten a lot more than one packet a day. But relieffactor.com is what gets you through the weekend. Even though we're no longer playing the, the pickup sports, you're out there running and walking. Some of you have weights at home, but you can't go to the gym yet. Some gyms are reopening on Monday. When you go back to the gym, you're going to be really sore. 
Get ahead of that curve with relieffactor.com. $19.95 gets you started. Support for the temporary relief of minor aches and pains. I take it in the first hour. I remind you about an hour, two, and three. I especially remind it to you on VE Day when you know that the sequester is coming to an end and we're all going to be back out there in the gym again, back slogging through the exercise routine. Get your relief factor. Get ahead of the soreness that's going to accompany that temporary support for the aches and pains that accompany exercise and aging. ReliefFactor.com, ReliefFactor.com, and don't forget, HonorBoundCoffee.com. Support the troops and their families. 100% of the profits from HonorBoundCoffee.com. Go to military family and the charities that support them. Thank you for both buying ReliefFactor.com and supporting military families with HonorBoundCoffee.com. Coming right back with Dr. Arn here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in three minutes and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in two minutes and 45 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in two minutes and 15 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in one minute and 45 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in one minute and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 45 seconds.
The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show returns from break in five seconds. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hilltail Dialogue underway, as it has been all day on the 75th anniversary of victory in Europe over the evil Nazi regime. Dr. Larry Arn, biographer of Churchill, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. If you like today's conversations, go and support the college. Uh, Dr. Arn, there were some pretty dark days when uh, Churchill had to think they were going to lose and have to move the government to Canada or someplace, right? There was... So we might have some dark days. I don't want to deny that. In the fall, it could come back like it did in 1918 in a deadlier form, and it could come back um, with an aim on children, which it is God has blessed us. It's only taken a few children, and that's too many, but it hasn't ravaged them like it's ravaged old people. What do we do if that happens as a free people? Well, I mean, uh, you know, in, in war, you do have to make rational calculations that sound cold, right? And and we don't know the death rate from not having the country. Right now, it's unclear to me, and I'm not the expert, I admit it, but I try to figure it out because i got decisions to make. It looks to me like we're not actually doing anything to lessen the death count because uh, the virus is going to be around for a long time. It's killing a certain percentage of people. They say no vaccine for more than a year, right? And, and, and so the reason we went into all this shutdown was to stop the hospitals from being overwhelmed. Well, they haven't been overwhelmed, and they, they were. You know, CBS got caught. Somebody told me I didn't see it. I don't watch CBS. But uh, they got caught showing scenes from a... Uh, overwhelmed, miserable hospital. And then it was discovered the hospital was in Italy, which has one-third the number of intensive care units that we have per population, and which has an older and heavy-smoking population where the generations frequently live together in a single house. And so that situation is different, right? And our hospitals have not been like that. And you can say it's the shutdown, but so far as I can tell from the science, reading the experts, uh, and I don't, I don't find any scientists uh, uh, disputing this, to flatten the curve is to make the thing last longer. And, and, and meanwhile, these other effects, which are traumatic, right? I mean, just think, you know, built the business. That's a that's a, a lifetime achievement, and then lose it, right? That's just that's that's worse than the loss of income. And, uh, and I would I would say the original shutdown was in order to prepare hospitals for surges, and to prepare the country with ventilators, and to develop strategic supplies, and to be prepared for waves of ill people. I think we've done that. I think we there might be more to do, uh, uh, and it might go on a little bit longer. But I think what the president has said 
is we've done as much of that as we can. Now we're going to have to turn it loose to the states to figure out what to do next. And that's what a free people does, at least a federalism uh, system of free people does. Yeah. And if you if you publish the guidelines, right, first of all, <coughs> now it's stay at home, right? Well, people are not staying at home, right? Because stay at home doesn't work. People starve to death. They got to go out, right? And there's not enough police to stop everybody and find out if they're doing something on the essential list when they go shopping, and and uh, or that they're directly on the route back and forth from, right? So, voluntary compliance is the only effective form of compliance, and it too will be imperfect. So, I, I don't see this myself. I I I I actively disliked it. The minute I heard of it, and, and uh, at Hillsdale, we focused on this. Okay, new situation. How do we have college, right? We haven't been able to do that yet, but we are going to do it the minute it's possible. That should be the attitude of the government, too. I, I think that is uh, taking hold, and it is not civil disobedience. It is pressure from people who are engaged. And I think there's an argument to be made and to persuade people to this point of view, Dr. Arndt. Faster yeah. is better. And that argument's being made despite a, a, a net of media that obstructs it because they want Trump to lose. So it's not really a, an argument that's being made freely, but we're making it right now, so that's good. Yep, there you go. It, it, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, you know, to despair of the country would be shameful. That's another thing you learn from Churchill. Uh, Churchill, you know, when, when he lost the 1945 election, that was a disaster that he'd been worried about since he was 24 years old. First thing he wrote about that, right? And, you know, and the war itself was another disaster that he'd been writing about since he was 26. And then what he did was he went to, to, Switzer, uh, to uh, Switzerland and mourned for a couple of weeks, and then he came back and got back to work. Exactly. Exactly. Dr. Larry Arn, congratulations on a great broadcast on the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe. We'll get victory over the virus, too. 75 years from now, they'll be talking about how. I wish we were around to hear it. We won't be. But someone will listen to this. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Dwayne. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. Dialogue.